a warm welcome to the afternoon show. Bill Arnold, so glad that we're going to be together for the next couple hours. I hope you can spend both of them with me. It's going to be a great show. Rob Louie is going to be coming on in just a minute. And then uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be in here as well in the whole first hour. So it's going to be a great hour. You know, we're starting to uh, feel like we're living in a society which, sadly, we're uh, embracing uh, often a posture of of, um, offense. We're, We're... seems that people look for opportunities to be offended by others who don't see the world from their point of view. And I think God is reminding us always that our battle is, is not against uh, our fellow brothers and sisters, men and women, but against the uh, spiritual forces of darkness that wage against us. So it's uh, just important to be re- reminded that we need to love one another and to be patient and to listen and to not be triggered and to continue to Look for opportunities to be peacemakers. So anyway, that's my short sermonette for the day. Rob Louie is the executive editor of The Daily Signal and my regular guest on Tuesday, and he brings sanity to the whole situation in Washington, D.C. Rob, welcome. Well, I hope so, Bill. It's <laughs> it's a crazy world out there, that's yes, for sure. Yeah. Let's chat a little bit about the election uh, coming up and the the mail-in voting. Um, are there Are there vulnerabilities out there that we should be aware of? There definitely are. And uh, and I think the, the situation we find ourselves in because of COVID-19 uh, this year in 2020, uh, we we are, uh, you know, I don't know what exactly to expect on November 3rd. But what I what I do know is that probably uh, we won't have an answer unless it's a decisive and uh, and, and clear victory that that one candidate simply cannot catch up to the others. But uh, take just yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, sided with uh, with Pennsylvania's uh, Supreme Court in a in a decision that will allow them to count uh, ballots three days after the election. Mm. Uh, they have to be postmarked by election on election day. You know, mm-hmm. that's, they can't be postmarked on the fourth or anything. But uh, you know, that tells me in a state that was decided by forty thousand votes in twenty sixteen uh, that you probably won't have an answer then until what you know Friday of, of election election week. I mean, it's uh, it's a situation that I think will. Uh, have the lawyers working overtime and probably um, confidence in our in our elections uh, shaken because there will be people who uh, don't necessarily agree uh, that that's uh, that that's the the way to do it. Uh, people uh, will say no. Uh, you should have up until that very last minute to get it postmarked and and in the mail. So, uh, but there's just a lot of that. There's there's situations like that happening all over our country right now, and it opens uh, it opens ourselves up uh, to fraud and uh, and those uh, who who tend to um, uh, you know, break the law, frankly. And, and that's why one of the things that we've done at the Heritage Foundation and we highlight on the Daily Signal uh, quite often is uh, examples, real life stories of election fraud. We have a database with over 1,200 cases, uh, convictions uh, that, uh, that, you know, your listeners can go and check out for themselves and see uh, the varying ways that, that people have tried to manipulate and cheat. Yeah, not to mention, too, I just saw that somebody threw um, a fire, a little fireball down a, a voting uh, ballot box and burned up all all the vo- votes in that box and I'm thinking huh that's not good yeah that's that's not good at all no, no. I mean that's that, that this is I think that you're seeing a few things. I mean, not only uh, are we living in unprecedented times because of COVID-19 and the situation where people just don't feel comfortable uh, going to the polls on Election Day. By the way, I think I still personally believe, Bill, that that's the, the best way to ensure that your vote counts uh, because it won't get lost in the mail. Uh, there, there are a number of things uh, having 
previously voted by absentee ballot. I mean, there are a number of steps that you actually have to take uh, in particular states. I uh, have to get it signed and some states require a witness. Uh, you have to check certain boxes. I mean, I know in Virginia, for instance, where, where I am, uh, you have to have you have to identify a reason that you're voting absentee. Mm-hmm. And, and if you leave any of that information off the ballot, uh, the state may reject it. Uh, you saw that happen in New York for the primary election year. One in five absentee ballots was rejected. And that's just uh, looking at a primary election. I mean, imagine uh, nationwide having a, a presidential election. And so that's why uh, we've we've encouraged people to go to the polls on Election Day just to make sure, uh, obviously, maintain social distancing and wear a mask and do all those things to keep yourself safe. But uh, make sure your vote counts. And uh, and I think the other thing is there's a lot of intensity out there. So uh, you hear a lot of talk about voter intimidation, people uh, doing mischievous things. And uh, and we just need to to you know, <laughs> uh, do our best uh, to, to pray that, uh, that that people don't uh, resort to those types of actions. And when we see that taking place, make sure that we uh, contact the authorities and and report it, uh, because there are intimidation tactics that I believe both sides employ. And it's not uh, not uh, just Republicans or Democrats, but there are are people on uh, uh, who, are, who are up to no good. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You had a great uh, interview with uh... Brent Bozell from the Media Research Center uh, talking uh, about the tech companies and the power that they have and the way that they can uh, kill stories and remove things. And that's um, that's getting to be pretty scary, Rob. It, it, it certainly is. We've experienced it firsthand ourselves uh, in, the, in the case of, uh, of having even a medical doctor uh, giving her advice uh, on YouTube and YouTube deciding that that video violated its hate speech policy and uh, and removing it from the platform. So, yes, uh, we know firsthand uh, not just that example, but there's plenty of others. Uh, we, we're increasingly seeing it with these fact checks, these third party fact checks that the platforms are using. Now, even in the case of last week's uh, big story, the, the Hunter Biden uh, expose that came out from the New York Post, uh, Twitter and Facebook didn't even wait for the fact check to be done. And, and the fact checking organizations, by the way, were upset about that. They said, hey, you've, you've given us a responsibility here to do the fact checking and you went ahead and made a decision without even having our input. Um, and, and I think that's why you saw both uh, Facebook and Twitter back off because they recognized uh, that some of their actions were, were unwarranted. And, uh, and as more evidence came to light, including from the director of national intelligence, uh, it wasn't a Russian disinformation campaign, but it was actually Hunter Biden's laptop. So, but, uh, but what Brent Pozell was talking about, I think, was the power that they, they have to not only control the information that we receive, it's, uh, it is filtered. Uh, there are algorithms that they use uh, to determine what shows up in your Facebook newsfeed. Uh, but also their ability to suppress content and and uh, and remove content from the platform. And too often, conservatives and Christians have been the ones uh, been on the losing end of that. And uh, what what he has started is a great website. I've been calling for this for a long time. I said said we need to have a database of cases uh, that show exactly when conservatives have been censored or suppressed or restricted in some way. And that's exactly what you can find at censortrack.org, the website. And uh, it's a really terrific resource. And it, by the way, your listeners, if they find themselves in a situation where they are being censored, they can submit their cases uh, to this website and have their uh, their case documented in the database as well. So it's really for everybody to utilize and, uh, and paint a clearer picture about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Rob, what's your take on the the suppression of the Hunter Biden story. I know it's two weeks before the election. It certainly seems that there are some facts that need to be looked at. Um, what, what is your take on it? Well, given the fact that, that 
Twitter, let's just take Twitter, uh, which which called it uh, a violation of its hacking policy, uh, given that Twitter and Jack Dorsey has, has backed off from that and said that they made a mistake in blocking the link and, and uh, suspending those people who, who shared it. I think that uh, that's an admission that they screwed up and they mm-hmm. went too far. I think probably what happened was you had a situation where there was a lot of groupthink. Uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, to do this. Uh, they recognized that uh, as as the story was taking off, it was a breaking news story uh, from the New York Post that uh, one of the things that, that they would do to uh, – stymie its growth was to put some of these uh, restrictions in place. That's what Facebook did. They they made sure that the story you know wasn't showing up in news feeds uh, by suppressing uh, its ability um, to to do that. So I I find it very troubling. Uh, I I find it even more troubling because I think as we've now seen w- things develop and and the New York Post wasn't the only place that received this information. There are others who have looked into it. There are more stories that have come out about it. Uh, there are people who validated some of the emails uh, that they have exchanged with, with Hunter Biden. I mean, there was a very personal text message exchange between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden about uh, his his addiction problems. And, you know, I mean, you, you really feel for uh, Hunter Biden and the challenges that he's experiencing firsthand and, and the fatherly love of Joe Biden. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, they haven't denied the fact that it, <laughs> they haven't said it's that, that it's not their laptop. So, uh, just a number of factors, Bill, that I think uh, journalists, instead of trying to uh, question the story, uh, journalists would have been good to to look into some of the details there and some of maybe the shady things that were going on with uh, with payments and whatnot. And by the way, Bill, I need to say one other thing on this because I I just found it appalling that a CBS news reporter who asked Joe Biden about this was then attacked and criticized for having the audacity to raise the issue with the Democratic candidate for president. Hmm. Uh, he's already somebody who, who the media has admitted is the least scrutinized presidential frontrunner in, in the modern era. Uh, that's in part because there's so much of focus and attention on Donald Trump. It's also because we just haven't had a traditional campaign. But when even the news media is recognized uh, that, that Joe Biden doesn't get scrutinized, I think that tells you that uh, our media has failed and uh, and they need to do a better job. Yeah, I mean, it seems that you can't walk into a gas station without being on camera. So how is this uh, computer repair store in Delaware not monitoring who comes in and out of the store? I would imagine yeah. that there are surveillance cameras. I mean, that's pretty high-tech equipment that's coming in and out of the store. I think you'd want a record of who's uh, coming and going. Well, the whole that whole situation seems seems bizarre to me that somebody would drop off the computer for repair and not pick it up, and then you know there's a clause, I guess, in the contract with the with the computer the the, the store owner where he would take possession of it. So, yeah, Bill, I I just. Um, <laughs> I'm baffled uh, to a certain extent about about how all that uh, that happened. And then obviously the the store owner, you know, kind of changing his tune and some of the media reports. So uh, just a, a, a lot there that's uh, that's still unknown. Uh, and I think that's, again, another reason why it is is worthwhile for the news organizations to to take a close, hard look at this. If you reverse the situation and it was Donald Trump Jr. that had dropped off a laptop and it had a, some incriminating or, or and unsavory information on there mm-hmm. about Donald Trump, uh, you better believe that it would be all over the place, just like the Steele dossier was, just like Trump's tax returns were. You know, there were a whole number of things that the president ha- has has had reported on that uh, that are, are private in nature, and, uh, and the news media didn't blink an eye. Yeah, it's so true. Rob, is George Soros trying to alter the criminal justice system in America? Well, we, we have—look, uh, this is this is something that I've seen happen— uh, 
firsthand uh, right here in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, where uh, the uh, the district attorney, the prosecutor, is uh, is somebody who uh, was endorsed uh, by uh, organizations supported by by George Soros and his network. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it is absolutely happening across the country. We have a, a great investigative report from my colleague Kevin Moody on the Daily Signal, uh, where he walks through uh, some of the. Uh, the, the situation for what's happening. Um, and, and what you're seeing is even in the case where these are Democrat elected prosecutors, uh, Soros and his allies are coming in and in, in primaries, primary elections, trying to defeat them and put in place prosecutors who have a radically different view of law and order. Uh, and and basically that view amounts to uh, being social justice warriors, uh, individuals who uh, either don't prosecute crimes or individuals who have, uh, you know, di- a different take on on what crimes uh, should receive punishment. Uh, notably, drug cases are, are are one example of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, uh, there there's always somebody who has an agenda, uh, you know, when it comes to politics, of course. And I think this is a case where we just want to make sure the American people understand. Uh, particularly at a time when when so many are clamoring for a return to law and order, that there are people uh, in this country who are are trying to undermine that, and they're the very people who are charged with prosecuting these cases. Mm-hmm. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. When we come back, I want to ask him about one Marine veteran named Gabe Johnson who's kind of on a mission to save Portland, Oregon from lawlessness. We'll be right back. Bluey is my guest because he says yes, and I so appreciate him showing up every Tuesday to talk about uh, what's going on in the world. It seems, Rob, that uh, there's an effort to restore law and order in the great uh, town of Portland, a place I really, really like. And a single Marine veteran, Gabe Johnson, is kind of on a mission uh, to stand uh, up for police. What else can we learn about that story? Thank you. Uh, yes, Gabe Johnson uh, was a guest on our on our Daily Signal podcast. Um, he is a Marine veteran. Uh, he and several others have founded the Coalition to Save Portland, uh, which is standing with the Portland Pro- Police Bureau. Uh, they're calling on local and state leaders to end the riots and finally, after five months, restore some order in that city. So uh, we've had him on the show before, and we decided to invite him back to see if there was uh, there was any changed, uh, change uh, taking place and uh, what he's doing to really try to help. And so uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating interview because, um, unfortunately, uh, he acknowledges that uh, there's, there is very little being done uh, to, to, uh, to resolve some of the, the problems. Um, and uh, he, he, in fact, tells us that the shootings have become more frequent. And, uh, and it's just really disturbing to see uh, what, is, uh, what is transpiring in that city and the lack of leaders there uh, to do anything about it. Um, I think that this is, uh, this is the, the, the American people probably truly don't appreciate or know what's happening. Uh, again, I don't want to harp on media bias, but I don't feel like uh, they've been told the, the true story about what's going on in Portland, which is why we feel it's so important to do so at the Daily Signal. So, um, so we're going to keep doing that, Bill. And, uh, and we, uh, uh, we're going to have find people like Gabe Johnson mm-hmm. and, and others out there who, who can really tell us the truth and, uh, and make sure that they shine light on this. So uh, those people don't uh, necessarily have to live in fear. And that's what, uh, what a lot of them are doing right now. 
I thought Minneapolis was uh, messy for quite a while, but Portland is uh, kind of beating everybody up. Yeah, it certainly is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. I think it's a combination of uh, uh, of the left wing activism you see there uh, that that naturally is uh, has been a hub for for that type of activity. And I also think that uh, you know there are um, there are other things that, uh, that that may make it a conducive place. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, the lack of leadership, the fact that you had um, you know <laughs> this this violence and this type of activity taking place without. Uh, the elected leaders uh, really stepping in uh, to put an end to it, I think, was a signal to to some people that um, that they could get away with it. And that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. All right, Rob, I would love for you to talk about this uh, confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett and then the idea that there would be uh, court packing, which is probably the ultimate power grab, isn't it? It, it, it certainly is. Well, we are in the home stretch for, for Judge Barrett. Uh, we expect the Senate Judiciary Committee to meet this Thursday and uh, vote her out of committee. The Democrats have threatened uh, to have some stall tactics uh, to, to prevent that from happening, but I'm fairly confident that the Republicans who have a majority will be able to overcome those uh, those hurdles. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell announced today that a floor vote would take place on Monday. Uh, that'll require the senators to, to work over the weekend because, again, uh, you know, the Democrats have some some procedural tactics uh, that they can do. But, uh, you know, if she's confirmed Monday, she'll be quickly sworn in and then be sitting as a justice on the Supreme Court. But it's a long way uh, until Monday in, in the world of Washington. And so, as we know from from prior Supreme Court uh, confirmation fights, there is a, uh, a very good likelihood that the Democrats uh, might try to throw in some some last minute shenanigans. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, yes, you're absolutely right about court packing bill. Uh, they have said that if she is confirmed, this will be a priority that they push. Uh, notably, however, uh, Joe Biden has refused to, to state his position on court packing. Uh, he could put an end to this pretty quickly uh, and, uh, and and say he believes in the institution as it currently exists and has, has existed since the Civil War, uh, but uh, he's refused to do so. So it's left the American people wondering uh, what might happen uh, under a Biden presidency, and uh, particularly if the Democrats uh, gain control of the U.S. Senate. Yeah, you know, I've heard... Uh... Uh, Vice President Biden say that, you know, I'm really kind of against it, but I'll have to see what happens. And it seems like if you were to just ask the following question, well, let's just say she gets confirmed. Now what now what are you interested in doing would be a, a logical place to go. But nobody seems to ever ask that question. Well, he he said that he will give us an answer before Election Day. Oh, uh, he, he could be waiting until the confirmation vote takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, to be honest with you, I'm sure. Look. I expect it to come up on Thursday in Thursday's debate, whether whether the moderator asks it, which is probably unlikely, or whether Trump tries to bring it up. Um, I think that it'll be a, a topic of of, uh, of interesting uh, debate, and uh, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, the, the the thing that I think your listeners need to understand is that there has been a clamoring on the part of those on the left to undo. Uh, the filibuster in the Senate. And uh, the, the filibuster, of course, uh, makes it a higher hurdle for the Senate than the U.S. House to, to pass legislation. Uh, for good reason. <laughs> the Senate is supposed to be there to, to take more of a calming approach and, and not be so radical in terms of, uh, of changing our institutions and our, and our, and our ways. Uh, but in order to pass the Green New Deal, in order to repeal the, the Trump tax cuts, in order to uh, pack the courts in order to do any number of things. They need to get rid of the filibuster. And so I think that there's going to be a push 
on that first before you see a push to do court packing because they just simply wouldn't be able to get it through. And I think there still will be some Democrats who who believe in the institution and believe that it's uh, functioning properly. As Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said, uh, nine is a good number. Mm-hmm. So uh, Daniel Mahoney at The Daily Signal did an interesting story on uh, liberalism dominating college campuses. Um, yes. Say more well, it's, on that. It's, yeah, it's no secret. I mean, it's it's certainly been happening now for for a generation or more, and uh, was certainly something I personally experienced. and uh, And it's uh, it's of concern because I think that as you have seen over and over again, uh, you you have fewer and fewer conservatives who are are teaching uh, the classes. They've been pushed out of uh, departments, and uh, and as a result of that, uh, it's almost uh, like an indoctrination uh, in in many of these places. And you see it uh, happening at places like Harvard University and, and Middlebury College. Which is uh, which is exactly what uh, we we featured in the Daily Signal article, and uh, and there are um, really troubling things happening where uh, the lack of um, the lack of debate or the punishment of, of those who might dissent from from those views uh, being punished or or made to feel that they uh, you know don't have a place to to express their views. This is not America. I mean, I this is I don't understand how things uh, got so bad. At least when I was when I was in college twenty years ago, Bill. Uh, I, I don't remember uh, the situation being quite that bad. I remember you would get in debates and fights, uh, hmm. but the fact that people are actually being punished and felt that they uh, they feel they can't even uh, talk about these issues is is just really concerning. And so uh, we need to fight back on that. And uh, and we have another story on the Daily Signal this week that shows that you know a quarter of college students say they're going to protest if Trump wins the election. I mean, it is just incredible uh, that that differs starkly from those uh, those conservative college students who say they'll protest if Biden wins. It's almost like if they don't get their way. Uh, they're just they're going to throw a hissy fit and they're probably going to call for the, the end of the Electoral College and who knows what else. Uh, but we need to be prepared for it, because I think uh, the founders of this country put in place some of these institutions for a very good reason. And as we've seen uh, Black Lives Matter uh, attack the nuclear family and, and attack our way of life. Uh, this isn't just about the institution of the Electoral College or the Supreme Court. It's about the very way uh, that we go about our lives. And, and, and religion has a big role in that. And I, you better believe they're going to come after our faith as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Rob, I'll look forward to our discussion next uh, week when we'll be able to talk about uh, the, the final debate, which is happening Thursday. It's going to be interesting. It certainly will, Bill. Thanks for having yeah. me today. Yeah, always a pleasure. Rob Louie has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll take a little break. We've got lots more ahead. Be right back.
pretty sure Greg doesn't mind if I let that music play for a little while. I think <laughs> yeah, that, I love that music. I do too. Makes me happy. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Greg Borgon is my guest. He's president and founder of Heart of a Warrior Ministries. Head over to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about his powerful ministry and his great teachings and writings. Greg, always nice to have you back. We've been in the series on leadership and ethics and kind of working off your leadership beef jerky uh, book, which has been great. I think today we're going to talk about discerning and making good decisions. It's going to be a great time together. Well, it's going to, it's an important topic, especially for today, especially as November 3rd keeps creeping up here, and we're all going to be making some decisions, hopefully in the voting booth, or maybe we've already done so on the ballot. But uh, making wise decisions is, is going to be absolutely important this time around, don't you think, Bill? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, let me go ahead and begin, if I could. Um, when you take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, beginning with verse 1, we read, Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its heart appearance. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there's a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. So how many uh, wise leaders do we know today? I, I, if I asked your audience, if I was sitting across a table with some of them, I'd have to wonder who they'd raise as, well, that's a, a wise leader. When I was an executive pastor of a large church in Southern California, a prominent internationally renowned church leader visited our church I asked him what he thought was the biggest problem facing leaders for the foreseeable future. His answer came quickly, and it consisted of one word, discernment. Mm. How does a leader discern the right course of action? You know, decide between, say, two equally viable options or be objectively informed by divergent perspectives, for instance, uh, viable options, hopefully. Uh, suspend his or her own predispositions and biases, maybe to hear different voices and consult his or her inner convictions before deciding. To a great degree, the, uh, the intuition that we have, enlightened by insight, will help us make some wise decisions. There's three levels, Bill, of insight, of increasing complexity uh, that are possible today. These levels are used by leaders to make decisions, uh, the information level, the, informa- uh, the knowledge level, and the wise level. I just want to remind your audience that this message really is for anyone making decisions. You don't have to be a leader to make these kinds of, everybody has to make decisions every single day of their life and many of them consequential decisions. So hopefully what I'm about to share will be helpful to you uh, today. And thank you for reminding us of that, Greg. That's important. Yeah. So these three levels of information, knowledge, and wisdom, university training can uh, help you with the first two, but rarely is able to give you enough information or enough training for the third level. So let's just cover them very briefly. So many of us are living on the first level, which is the information level, which is simply ordering understanding as an ordered understanding of raw data. We don't give enough time to reflection leading to comprehension. The tyranny of the urgent, for instance, the frenzied activity of our daily lives and constant bombardment of of data from TV, from newspapers, magazines, social media, the Internet, and so forth. Uh, they rob us of an ordered analysis of our world. We operate off of sound bites, Bill, instead of measured and thoughtful examination. I think we just lost Greg, but he'll be back because uh, I think it was just a phone call that went away. 
And we're talking to uh, Dr. Greg Borgon. His book that he wrote a couple of years ago is called Leadership Beef Jerky, Principles and Practices You Can Chew On. And I love the fact that he reminded all of us that if you, uh, you, you all have leadership roles. And so you don't, this isn't relegated to the people who are in, uh, CEOs of companies. Uh, as you know, head of your family, you're making leadership decisions all the time. Uh, so there's always people uh, making leadership decisions. Greg, I know that you you like to just go away at times, and that was pretty abrupt. <laughs> next time, I'm sorry about give me that, Bill. give me a warning next time. <laughs> I apologize for that. That's I apologize okay. to your audience. Okay, we just finished covering the information level, which is just really the assembly of raw data. Many others are stuck at the second level, Bill, the knowledge level. Satisfied with an acquisition, uh, really an accumulation of information. They order in such a way as to produce an intellectual grasp of the essentials, enough, honestly, to converse intelligently on the subject, but really a little more. We acquire competencies, analyzing data, and applying rubrics to tease out nuggets that will hopefully propel us into a preferable outcome or attainment of some sought-after goal. The trouble with remaining at this level, however, is that our mental comprehension doesn't move on to applied wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that you can't learn to apply wisdom in school, but the fact of the matter is that most of us are trained at the information and the knowledge level and not how to actually apply it in a wise way. So the third level, we need to move to the wisdom level by prioritizing the acquisition and accumulation of knowledge into wisdom. Wisdom is an, uh, really an internal quality developed over time. It's established by a congruent belief system, conditioned by uh, our core value system, informed by an integrated worldview, and it actually honed through, through experience. So learned methods, processes, systems, and strategies are the tools we use, but it is wisdom that provides discernment in the, their application. The individual I had the conversation with uh, back in San Diego, when he pointed out that discernment is the biggest problem, what he was really saying is, we may have knowledge, but we don't know how to apply that knowledge in a wise way. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the Internet offers access to information almost on every topic imaginable. Any person can acquire information on a given topic. They can recast it in their own words and present the information as if it were their own. When we process that information, comprehend its significance, visualize its application, and apply that knowledge to events, situations, or circumstances, we're operating really at a knowledge level. When you go one step further, though, weighing the significance of the information, analyzing the specifics of that body of information, synthesizing it into other related information, and evaluate the reports of the information, and making informed judgments regarding the utility of information is operating at the wisdom level. Let me give you an example, Bill. In Exodus 20, we're exposed to information, the existence of Ten Commandments. We develop a knowledge about them when, through, uh, let's say, study and reflection, we comprehend their, their meaning. For instance, the first four commandments address our relationship with God, and the remaining six commandments address our relationship with others. So knowledge becomes wisdom, however, when we understand the commandments' implications to us individually, and we personally apply them to our lives as we process them through a belief system that has established our values. You see the difference there, Bill? I do. 
Well, and one of my other favorite movies besides Gladiator is Jurassic Park. In that, that this popular uh, movie, the proprietor of the park, John Hammond, presides over a lunch with invited guests who've just witnessed the amazing existence of dinosaurs created in the lab and now kind of roaming the grounds. John is criticized by Malcolm, a skeptic, questions the entire enterprise. Here's what Malcolm says. The problem with scientific power you've used is it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others have done, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge yourselves, so you don't take responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you knew what you had, you patented it, packaged it, slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you want to sell it. John Hammond responds. He says, you don't give us our due credit. Our scientists have done things no one could ever do before. Malcolm responds, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Hmm. Science can create pesticides, but it can't tell us not to use them. Science can make a nuclear reactor, but it can't tell us not to build it. So in summary, Bill, then, information is the ordered understanding of raw data. Knowledge is meaning derived through study, reflection, and comprehension, but wisdom is knowledge applied based on one's core beliefs and values. There's a vast distance between having knowledge about something and having personal knowledge of something. The bridge from one to the other is wisdom. So we have to move to that next level, Bill. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this applies or not, Greg. It's a saying, I don't know who wrote it, but it's really wise, and I've had it in my head for a long, long time. And it says, tell me, and I'll probably forget. Show me, and I might remember. Involve me, and I'll understand. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly. when some of the discernment comes out in the good decision-making. Otherwise, you're just hearing information, but you're not processing it into something practical. No, I mean, just repeating what you may have found on the Internet, you're spitting it out as if it's your own knowledge, but you, you're, you're really an inch uh, deep and a mile wide right. with regard to the topic. You might sound conversant on it. You might even sound knowledgeable about it. But if somebody were to ask you, well, tell me how you apply that and what – uh, information are you using to inform your your decisions and i i suspect that they'd probably be stymied in answering that last part of that question it's like when the math teacher said you know make sure you turn in your work as to how you came yeah. to the conclusion yeah exactly i mean if you're just parroting what you've researched put it into your own words that doesn't suffice as proper research what do you do with it and how are you going to apply it and the most important question is why are you going to apply it that way? So that's, that's where wisdom comes in. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about four different types of wisdom. Getting to that third level, there are four different types of wisdom. There are uh, uh, natural wisdom. Is what was the, the first, first one? one? Natural wisdom. Natural wisdom, okay. Worldly wisdom. Okay. The, the gift of wisdom. And godly wisdom. So let's talk about each of those briefly. Natural wisdom finds its source uh, really in the sum of life's experiences. It can be inherited. Some people, frankly, are born wise, at least at this level, and have a natural capacity to draw wisdom from their surroundings. It can be learned from others, like, 
life circumstances can help you develop that kind of wisdom, trial and error, observation and experience. And for some, that's enough, Bill. But natural wisdom is really another name for common sense. Some people have it and some people really don't. When Paul and his traveling companions, for instance, were in Ephesus, they created an uproar when they questioned the efficacy of, of the gods that they encountered. The chief secretary of Ephesus quelled the whole crowd by using common sense. You can find that in Acts chapter 19, verses 35 through 41. So that's natural wisdom. So another name for that is just simply common sense. Mm -hmm. Worldly wisdom seeks insight apart from God. In fact, it opposes really the purposes of God. It's inspired by the enemy. It seeks to undermine God's redemptive purposes or disregard and ignore them altogether and call his existence even into question. Thwarting any divine initiative and questioning biblical principles and values is the, really the aim. In our society today, we see examples of factions intentionally undermining Christianity using worldly wisdom. An example of worldly wisdom, Bill, would be secular humanism, which means that you're living your life on a horizontal plane devoid of any vertical relationship with God or even an existence of God. So secular humanism is an example of, of this type of wisdom, this worldly wisdom. We're hearing a lot of that, uh, frankly, in the debates. Uh, the gift of wisdom, the spiritual gift of wisdom, is a spiritual gift from God. People who possess this gift, followers of Christ who actually have this gift, have an intimate understanding of God's Word and His commandments, which results in holy and upright living. It speaks into the life of individuals or a specific situation with great understanding and a biblically informed perspective. Its goal is to guide others towards a life of godliness. Now, the last one, godly wisdom. Now, spiritual wisdom is only given as a gift from God. It's not something you can attain uh, the, the spiritual gift of wisdom, it's not something you can even pray for. God gives it to you. If he, if he gives you this gift, he gives you at the point of conversion. Um, and, and some of us have more than one spiritual gift, and some of us have simply one. But nevertheless, God is the originator of it and the gifter of it. Um, so you have to be a follower of Christ in order to have a spiritual gift. Well, let's talk about godly wisdom. Godly wisdom sees life from God's perspective. A biblical worldview informs this wisdom and draws its clarity from the scriptures. So when we're talking, Bill, about a biblical worldview, we're talking about an uh, informed uh, opinion uh, and belief system related to, um, you know, ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. And for the Christian, it's God. Uh, the second question is human personhood. Uh, for the Christian is, we're all created in the image of God. For the secular humanist, we're just animals of a higher order. Uh, the third question is, what is the major dilemma people are facing? We're talking about biblical worldview right now. Um, and for the Christian, it's sin. And for the world, it's everything but sin. Um, we hear a lot of excuses for a lot of behavior today because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the fourth element of a biblical worldview is a solution to that dilemma. For the Christian, it's Jesus Christ and the cross. Mm -hmm. The secular humanist, it's more education because they believe the ultimate problem really is ignorance. And so in order to deal with that overarching dilemma, a secular humanist said the only answer to that is more education. Mm -hmm. But for the Christian, 
The answer is Jesus Christ. I love it. Well, the, Greg, we're going to have to take and, just a very short oh, break sure. right now. Yeah, uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Greg Borgon, we're talking about discernment, making good decisions. Tough subject, but you're handling it very well, Greg. And this is uh, coming um, out of your Leadership Beef Jerky Principles and Practices You Can Chew On, his book called Leadership Beef Jerky. All right, I cut you off a little bit there. I didn't mean to, but we had to go to break. Oh, that's no problem. Yeah. Well, just as a reminder, godly wisdom seeks life from God's perspective. And what we're talking about is a biblical worldview that informs this wisdom and draws its clarity from scriptures. And we talked about every worldview bill, every worldview that exists is going to have answers to these five basic issues. Ultimate reality, which for the Christian we said is heaven. Um, The whole idea of personhood for the Christian, we're all creating God's image. The whole idea of the major dilemma that we're facing in life Uh, The Christian would certainly identify that as sin, and then the solution for that dilemma would be Jesus Christ. And the final piece of that biblical worldview is ultimate destiny. Where do you go once you die? For the secular humanist, uh, you're you're into the dirt. That's it. For a a Bible-believing believer, it's heaven. Um, And so the idea here is, is that this biblical worldview is a lens through which we view life and make um, uh, understand and comprehend our observations in the process. And so when you see the world, God sees it, and you're grounded in, uh, in biblical beliefs, that's the foundation you're going to need for godly wisdom. It's uh, the result, this godly wisdom is a result of walking closely with God, seeing the world as God sees it, understanding the underlying influences that give rise to behavior and drawing accurate observations. Mm-hmm. It is, it's based on a biblically-based beliefs and values. We keep going back to that. We are encouraged to ask for this wisdom, by the way. Bill, in James chapter 1, verse 5, we say, ask for it, and God will give it to us. Mm-hmm. But let's not do it. Don't ask, it says, with, with a double mind. Um, either you step out in faith and trust God's perspective that you're going to embrace as your own in a biblical worldview, or you don't. So exercise of this kind of wisdom through the lens of a biblical worldview, based on a close walk with our Lord, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, will produce Bible-centered words and actions, Bill. And, and that's what I would encourage your audience to, to cultivate, is first of all to understand what a biblical worldview is, uh, embrace biblical beliefs and values, and use them as a filter through which to process some difficult decisions that they may be facing. And in the process of doing that, God honors those decisions. And so we're talking about applied wisdom here. Now, we know the story of Solomon, who was given this amazing gift, that some scholars say at the age of 18 or 19, when given the opportunity And God asked him for whatever he would like, and Solomon responded with wisdom. We know, um, based on on Proverbs, that he learned the importance of wisdom from his own father because he conveyed that lesson to his own sons 
And you'll read that in chapter 4 in, in Proverbs. But we also know that the life of, of Solomon, even though he was given wisdom uh, at a request, uh, as a request to God, we can see he didn't live his life in applied wisdom, mm-hmm. especially near the end of his life. So you can have wisdom. You can even have godly wisdom. But what's important is applying that wisdom in the context of your life. So the idea here is, is that it's not just important to be wise. It's important to live wisely and to make decisions wisely. Yeah. Greg, well said. It seems that people want godly wisdom, but really godly wisdom is often turn from your sin, stop a certain lifestyle choice, um, be obedient to God's word. That's godly wisdom. But a lot of the time, well, sure. people want something more than that. Well, I mean, if, if people don't calibrate their heart or tune their heart to the heart of God, that's true. the decisions they will make will be based on other influences in their life. It'll be the world. It might be their own desires, what the Bible calls the flesh. Or it could be the enemy himself. Or maybe a combination of all three of those. So it goes back to the central question about what's standing in the privileged vantage point of authority over what you believe and value. Mm-hmm. Making a, a decision that Jesus Christ in the Word is going to be in that seat of authority, that'll inform your godly wisdom, and it'll also condition the way in which you apply that godly wisdom. So let's just briefly discuss the characteristics of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is centered in Christ, first of all, as we've just discussed, and understood and discerned through the Holy Spirit. It consists of the knowledge of God's will. It requires an exercise of faith, which means trust, and is not self-centered. It's based on the Word of God, and it's perfected in obedience. Um, you learn that as you're, as you're reading Scripture. Godly wisdom is cultivated by going to the Bible with intentionality, Bill, listening for God's still small voice, and journaling maybe your findings, jotting them down when you do your devotions in the morning and you receive insight from the Lord. It's worth recording, and it's worth jotting down and remembering and going over again. So it's cultivated by going to the Bible with intentionality, listening to God's still small voice, and then writing down your findings, reading and rereading, in my view, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, two of the uh, five wisdom books in the Bible mm-hmm. that will help you develop godly wisdom. It's also a byproduct of allowing the Bible to challenge and influence maybe your core beliefs and, and values. We often hear people say, well, I believe the Bible says this when it probably doesn't, or it, uh, you'll find out that it didn't. And it's because the, the person uttering that really probably studied the Bible and understood what the heart of God was on that particular matter. So the, the, the caution I would give everyone is to calibrate your attitudes and worldview by the unchanging standard of God's Word. Process what you hear, what you're reading, what you see through a biblical perspective. Personally apply the Bible by way of meditation and purposeful reflection. Finally ask for it. Believe and don't doubt. Evaluate it and act on it. So here are some questions I would leave with the audience, Bill. And it'll take honest reflection. What level of insight do you employ? 
Is it the information level, the knowledge level, or the wisdom level? What type of wisdom do you practice? What informs and conditions your thought process? How discerning are you? What sources and resources do you use to make decisions? And finally, what ethical system influences your decisions? And we're talking about morality here. And in my view, again, Bill, and I'm sure it's in yours, it's God and his word. Mm-hmm. That's where you go to as the source, yep. the foundation to develop godly wisdom. That's my landing spot right there, Greg. <laughs> and I know it's yours as well. Thank you so much for this. This has been very challenging and very good. And like always, you give us a lot of information. So for me, I always have to go back and listen to it a second time <laughs> to process it because you are a machine. But I so appreciate it. Thank you so much well, for the time you, today. Bill. Yep. All right. You're welcome. Yep. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. The book that he wrote is called Leadership Beef Jerky. And you can check that out. We'll also uh, take a short break. And when we come back, uh, Reverend Ben Johnson will be with me. He's going to talk about the, uh, the Amy Barrett Amy Coney Barrett nomination. That's all next.